Hi, I'm Molly Saltzkog, a research analyst with the uh, Sufon Center, and I'm here with Ali Wayne, who is a senior analyst um, with um, the Global Macro Practice at Eurasia Group. Ali, it's great to be with here, you here today. It's great to be with you. So I know you recently uh, penned an excellent piece uh, that I read together with Ryan Haas in, in Foreign Policy, where you explored sort of the pitfalls and challenges of China's foreign policy, um, especially when it comes to its, its power to wield diplomatic clout. Um, do you mind walking us through some of the key insights of, of that piece? Sure. Well, Molly, thank you. It, it, it's great to be talking with you, and, and I really appreciate the kind words. The the upshot of the piece is is pretty simple. It's that while China is indeed a formidable multifaceted competitor to the United States, it isn't so overwhelming a competitor that it need or should or should even dictate U.S. foreign policy. And and you alluded to this distinction or this this gap in your your remarks. There's this gap that we try to spotlight in the article between China's economic heft on the one hand and its diplomatic standing on the other, at least uh, among advanced industrial democracies. And the argument we make is that if China continues to comport itself in a way that estranges it ever more steadily from those advanced industrial democracies that between them still collectively hold the preponderance of military and economic power, that it's going to get in its own way and that it's going to impede its ability to achieve whatever long-term strategic objectives it might harbor. And so uh, given that conclusion, we then offer two basic uh, policy prescriptions. Uh, the first is that the United States should pursue a foreign policy that is informed by, but not governed by, the phenomena of China's resurgence, number one. And number two, that w the United States, even as it leverages China's strategic errors to uh, infuse its alliances and partnerships with newfound momentum, it shouldn't make the counterbalancing of China the sole or even principal organizing principle of its foreign policy. It should instead in dealing with China and Russia, uh, it should think about how it can subordinate the management of great power tensions to the pursuit of more affirmative undertakings. I, I mean, I think you're spot on with this. I know that we've had conversations before about that in Washington, D.C., you should be very careful um, when formulating policy to, to have any sort of knee-jerk reaction to China or letting China dominate the whole you know, foreign policy strategy of the United States, even though it's a, it's an important strategic competitor that we must must acknowledge. But not everything that we should we do in the foreign policy space should be governed, as you say, um, by this um, in by by our our relationship with China or or our strategic countering of China. So I'm curious to pick your brain um, on on this one, the last um, policy recommendation, especially in light of you know the G7 summit, um, the reports how China's been the most contentious issues, especially with the European powers at that gathering, and you know also Biden meeting Putin next week. What would be your you know overall advice, both in dealing with our European allies and partners, but also for the upcoming Biden um, uh, Putin summit? So I would, I guess I would just sort of picking up on on what I was saying a little while back. I think we have to talk about China and Russia there, and and I think particularly when you talk with friends, uh, the the hallmark of friendship is honesty, and uh, China and Russia are are important players. They do uh, they do espouse different values than democracies, and so when the United States talks with its fellow advanced industrial democracies, of course it needs to talk about. 
China and Russia, of course, it needs to talk about selective contestation and uh, if and when uh, China and Russia engage in behaviors that undermine uh, our uh, shared uh, vital interests, we do need to push back. But I, and I, I think at the G7 has highlighted some of those uh, differences. Uh, even between the United States and its friends, there are going to be divergences in threat perceptions and policy priorities vis-a-vis uh, -vis China. I, I think it's interesting, actually, a, a small detail that I read the other day um, is that quietly the proposal to uh, the proposal to articulate a semi-formal D10 was quietly shelved uh, because there were concerns about having a grouping that was seen as being predicated on open hostility towards China. So I think recognizing that there are going to be divergences, uh, even between friends, vis-a-vis uh, -vis how to deal with China, how to deal with Russia, um, I think the question should be, um, how do we, rather than trying to articulate kind of a, a grand coalition of sorts against those two countries, how can we forge smaller, more nimble, more uh, dynamic, uh, ad hoc groupings uh, that are issue specific to push back against China and Russia selectively? And also, how do we salvage a baseline of cooperation with those two countries where our interests dictate? Uh, when you think about the full panoply of transnational challenges, whether pandemic disease, climate change, arms, con arms control, and so forth, uh, there is no conceivable scenario in which we can address those issues sustainably without a baseline of cooperation with China and Russia. So I think that the advice would be that let's think about where we need to push back against China and Russia selectively, but let's not make the counterbalancing those two countries the sole organizing principle or even the predominant one of our interactions with our allies and partners. Let's stick to our democratic values and our, and our common ground there. I couldn't agree more. Thank you so much. Thank you, Molly.